My name is Keith, and I want to say welcome, and welcome to church planting. You know, just reflecting uh, all the different locations and places we've been as a church. And uh, it might be annoying, it might be frustrating, but I just want to remind us that Jesus didn't come to save a building or establish a physical temple. Uh, He came to rescue a people and give us a purpose. And I just was reminded that every single one of us are more valuable than the greatest building there is in the world. And uh, John, you did a great job pointing us to what is so good about Good Friday. And that's going to be the big question that we're going to look at today. We're going to be in Luke 23. We're going to look through the Bible. Uh, But if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to Luke 23. And... uh, yeah, why, why is it Good Friday? And in order to understand why it's called Good Friday, you have to know the entire story of the Bible. Now, one of my favorite stories, a true story that happened just an hour south of here, there was a Denver seminary professor who had a PhD in biblical studies, doctorate of ministries, and he was on an airplane traveling, and uh, he pulled down his tray table, got out his little Bible, he set it in front of him, and he started to read, and he had one of those uh, passengers, you know, you either have a passenger that wants to talk or wants to be left alone, right? This is one of the talking passengers next to him. So he, he bumped him, and he's like, hey, man, what's that book about? And here's a guy with a doctorate, with a PhD, and there's a guy who doesn't know the Lord, who hasn't read the Bible, and in that moment, he's like, what do I say? What is the purpose of this book? What is the story of the Bible in one minute? And so he went on to try to explain it, but then he realized, I need to be more prepared. What is the story of the Bible? Why is Good Friday good? Now, underneath you, there is a little scarlet thread. You probably didn't notice it when you came in, but go ahead and check under your seat. There is a little piece of red thread uh, under your seat. Go ahead and grab that. You might not see it. It's dark, dark tile. There's one under every seat, unless a kid went and stole them all. But one of my best friends, an evangelist, he said, if you want to know the meaning of the Bible, you have to follow the scarlet thread. It's this really small thread that's woven throughout the entire scriptures. And if you don't look closely, you're going to miss it. You know, the Bible's a lot like mining for gold. If you just rake over the ground, you're not going to get gold. You're going to get leaves. But if you dig deep into the scriptures, you're going to see this scarlet thread. And so the Bible is just like any other story in that it has a beginning, has an exposition. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made the sea, the earth, and all that's in it, the animals, the fish, the birds, and the pinnacle of all of his creation was he created man and woman, made in his image to reflect him. And he placed him in the first temple, the earth, the Garden of Eden. I want you guys to just think the temple is a place where God and man can dwell together in intimacy and harmony. And then just like any story, conflict came into the story. We see in Genesis this mysterious figure, Satan, and he comes and he deceives and he tempts and he plants this lie where he says, God's not good. He's holding back. Take of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You should become God of this temple, God of this earth. And so in that moment, the temple is broken. The relationship with God and man is broken. 
Death enters into the world. Adam and Eve are exiled from the Garden of Eden. But before they're exiled, God comes with the scarlet thread. He comes and he provides animal skins. This is the first time we see sacrifice in the scripture. Instead of destroying and punishing Adam and Eve, he takes an animal, a goat, a lamb, a scapegoat, and the sins are placed on this animal, and Adam and Eve and God are able to have communion in that moment. And as you follow the stories of the scripture, we go to Noah next. And you guys probably all think of the story of Noah, and you think, yeah, there's an ark, there's judgment, and there's a rainbow, right? But if you look in the scriptures, this is your homework. The first thing Noah does when he gets off the boat, he performs sacrifices to the Lord. Maybe God is going to restore the creation. Maybe he's going to fix it. I better make sacrifices to remove the sin. Let's try to restore the garden, restore the temple. And what does Noah do with his garden? Uh, the first thing he does after that is he, he gets drunk, right? Uh, it just showed that something was wrong with his heart. Something was wrong with his relationship. And as you follow the scarlet thread, you get to the story of Abraham. And Genesis 15 is this interesting passage where God and Abraham actually enter into this blood covenant relationship where these animals, their blood is shed and they're supposed to walk through them. And in this covenant, they would say, if you don't uphold your end of the deal, let this be done to me. Let me be cursed and let me be killed and let my blood be spilled if I don't upend my end of the covenant. What's fascinating, it's the scarlet thread. God puts Abraham to sleep and God walks through it on his behalf. And he says, Abraham, if you mess up, I'll take the punishment that you deserve. This is all throughout the scriptures. And then we get to Moses and the people of Israel were uh, down in the land of Egypt and they were oppressed and they entered into slavery and God is going to free his people and take them to the promised land that he promised to Abraham. And how does he do it? Through the Passover meal. He says, judgment is coming to this nation. Judgment is going to come. Here's your choice. You can either be judged and destroyed or you can take an innocent lamb you can sacrifice this animal and you take the blood and you, pass, you paint it over your home. And when judgment comes, when the angel of death comes, it will see the blood and will say, I don't need to punish these people because the lamb has atoned for their sins and death would pass over. And then they would take this meal, they would cook this lamb and they would bring it into their home and they would eat it. And it gave them the power and the strength to escape slavery. And so later on, we see Moses establish this tabernacle, and eventually it would be fulfilled to be a temple through King Solomon. And if you guys have a Bible, I'm going to read from 2 Chronicles 5, verses 6 and 13 and 14. And so they're establishing a temple. They want to set up Jerusalem as the city, the city of David, the city of God, where man and God can dwell together in harmony. And they have to perform these sacrifices, and this is what it reads. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison and praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, they said this, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister 
because of the cloud. Look at this. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So they set up this temple. They performed these sacrifices. Now that the people's sin was forgiven, this holy God could be with his forgiven people. And it was so powerful. They worshiped and they praised. And his presence was so powerful, they couldn't even stand. They fell over at the presence of the Lord. Now, if you follow the story of the scarlet thread, we're going to see that God's people would fail to uphold their end of the covenant. They would not fulfill using the sacrificial system. They would look to idols and they would disobey God. And God promised, if you don't obey me, things will go bad. And so they're exiled throughout the empires of the day. But God starts to bring them in and he starts to establish this new covenant that he prophesied through this new king that wouldn't fail like Noah, that wouldn't fail like Solomon, that wouldn't fail like David, who would do what man can't do. The priests failed. The sacrificial system failed because of man's sin. Someone else would have to come to restore the earth. And so when Jesus shows up, everything starts to change. When Jesus showed up to meet his cousin, John the Baptist, John said this to the crowd, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, following the scarlet thread through the scriptures. Then something fascinating happens. Jesus is baptized. Why would Jesus get baptized? You might ask. He's like the only person who's never sinned. He's the son of God. He doesn't need to be forgiven of sin, right? But he said it's to fulfill all righteousness. What Jesus was saying is all your sin is going to be placed on me. I'm going to become sin. And then I'm going to take it to the tomb and I'm going to come up in newness of life. And you can follow after me. And so why did Jesus live? Why did he come? To do what we were supposed to do, to live a perfect life, to live in harmony with God and to obey him. And he also came to reveal the character of God. If you want to know who God is or what he's like, look to Jesus. He is the son of God. And so he lived this incredible life, raised up his disciples to begin to establish the church, and then he gets to a garden, a similar garden to the garden that Adam and Eve were in, a similar garden to the garden that Noah was in. And here he's tempted. He's tempted to not obey God, but to obey the flesh and to sin. But in the garden, he says yes to God, even when he knew it would cost him his own life. Jesus chose obedience to the point of death. What is death? Separation from God. If you ever want to know how much Jesus loves you, you need to know that he went to the cross and that's how you know he loves you. Now, a lot of churches on Good Friday will focus on the physical pain that Jesus went through. And uh, if you want to know how physically painful crucifixion is, you should go watch the movie, The Passion of the Christ. I think it does a great job of showing just how painful Roman crucifixion was. I'm not going to get into all the details, but Jesus was, was beaten. He had a crown of thorns. He was scourged. Look that up. It was terrible. He carried a cross. He was mocked. He was completely naked on a hill in front of an entire city, and he did nothing wrong. He was completely innocent. So I want to propose today that although the cross was physically painful, it was more spiritually painful and emotionally painful than you can ever imagine. To prove this, Jesus' disciples said, we want to die like you are going to die, Jesus. 
And he said, you're going to die like me. You guys are all going to get crucified except for John. Or you're going to die terrible deaths. But you can't drink the cup that I'm going to drink. Now, what's the cup he's talking about? Jeremiah the prophet talks about the cup of judgment. Jesus would drink the cup of judgment. Uh, like um, John Randall said earlier, Jesus became sin, even though he knew no sin. So what happened on the cross is so important for us to understand just how much he loves every single one of you. And the reality is this. What would you rather have? Uh, get betrayed by your best friend or your spouse or take a broken leg? For me, I'd take a broken leg or a broken arm any day, right? Uh, that is not as painful as a best friend betraying you or a best friend who's not there for you or a spouse who is not there for you. And this is what happened on the cross. Uh, a pastor once said this, if a friend betrays you, you might recover. But you have a spouse betray you, you may never fully recover because the pain will be so deep. Uh, one of my best friends went through a divorce. Uh, his wife left him, and uh, he, was, he was hurt extremely uh, bad through that whole situation. It took years for him to heal, but God's grace is so good. Uh, he had four children, and you know what kid was messed up and hurt the most through that divorce? The oldest son. As I reflected on that, it hurt him the most because he had been around the longest. He had seen that the longest. And now that that relationship was broken, it hurt him the most because he had seen that marriage for 12 years. Now think about it like this. Jesus had been in the deepest, greatest, most intimate relationship that the universe had ever seen with his father. For how long? For eternity. There's no beginning of their relationship. There's no starting point. They have always been together in this relationship of depth and love and care. But Jesus would go through hell, which is separation from God. And why would he do this? So that us exiles, so that us sinners could be brought home, so that we could come back to the Father. That Jesus would become a curse on the cross so that we who deserve the curse could receive the blessing of Jesus' perfect and obedient life. And this is how we know that Jesus loves us. He went through hell. He gave up the greatest thing in that moment. Why? Because he loves you. Because he wants you to come home. And so we're going to look at Luke 23 now. We're going to read from Luke 23 and we're going to talk about what happened on the cross. There's some amazing dialogue here um, that we're going to look at. So we're going to look at 23. We're going to start in verse 32, and we're going to go through verse 49, and then we'll talk about it. All right. I'm going to read from here. A little brighter on my phone, you know? All right, here we go. Uh, two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. Verse 33, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him. <clears throat> and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide 
his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. I want you guys just to think of Jesus, the innocent one, getting mocked by his own creation. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. I want you guys to think about that. You really, all of your life, you live out what you know. If these Roman soldiers, if these people knew who Jesus was, if they knew he was loving, if they knew who he was powerful, if they knew he was the son of God, they would not be opposing Jesus like that. This should change our heart as Christians. Do you look at sinners, at people who are different than you, people who are doing the all kinds of terrible sins, and do you say, Lord, they don't know you? If they knew you, if they caught a glimpse of your love, your beauty, and your power, I don't think they would be doing that. This just convicted me this week. Instead of judging other people, to look at them and say, Father, forgive them. I just heard some young people at the gym just take the Lord's name in vain so loud. I just prayed right there, Lord, they don't know. Let me share the, let me share how amazing and great you are. And so one of the reasons, the first reason that we see Jesus came is so that we can know him. We can know what the cross is about. Paul said, I pray that you can understand that power from heaven would be given to you so that you can know the height and depth and width of God's love in Christ Jesus. All right, let's continue. Let's look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the others rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Verse 41. And we indeed We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So what we can learn from this, the first thing that happened, there's two people on the side of Jesus, one good uh, and one Uh, Let's just say they're both bad, right? They're both sinners. But one does something that makes him good. He can admit his guilt, but he can notice that Jesus is innocent. And so if you're not a Christian here tonight, this is literally the first step. I am guilty. I deserve the cross. But this man, the son of God, he is innocent. And then it's the simple plea. Lord, will you remember me? Will you remember me? Have you ever cried out to God and said that in your affliction in your life? Lord, will you remember me? You know what's amazing about the thief on the cross? He wasn't a church member. He was never baptized. He never did communion. He never spoke in tongues. He never performed a miracle. He never did anything good or amazing with his life. But he admitted that. I'm a sinner. Jesus is the son of God. Will you Remember me. This is the power of the cross and the power of salvation. 
If you haven't done that in your life, those are the three things you need to do. Let's look at verse 44. And it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. It's not supposed to be dark at this time. Verse 45, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now the centurion saw what had taken place and he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. The veil was torn. Now, in the temple, there was this gap between God and man. It was called the Holy of Holies. And there was this curtain. And if you saw how thick it was, it's like as thick as a New York City uh, phone book. It's massive, this piece of cloth, this piece of curtain. And it's supposed to represent this barrier between God and man. And in this moment on the cross where Jesus takes our sin, that veil is torn, meaning the gap between God and man, the chasm between God and man, the sin between God and man had been paid in full. And there's now a bridge There's now a relationship that can be reconciled between us and God through faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus commits his spirit to the Father. What's amazing about that is his spirit went to heaven. It would come back into his body. Jesus would rise, and then he would ascend to heaven fully in spirit and body, and then he would send his spirit. The same thing that happens to Jesus will happen to us. Have you committed your spirit to the Father? Have you committed your life to God? Have you looked up to the cross? Have you seen him there? I'm just going to close with this one verse in John chapter 3, verses 14. You know, John 3, 16 is always the the famous verse, right? Uh, It's literally like the verses around it (laughs) that are some of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. And it says this, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone believes in him will have eternal life. Now, just a little backdrop on this story. This is Moses and the people in the wilderness, and they're disobeying God. They're grumbling, they're complaining, they're sinning. And so God sends these serpents into the wilderness. And they start to bite people. People start to die. And they're filled with this poison. This is a picture of sin. And you know what the cure is for these people? They come to Moses. What are we supposed to do? We're dying from snakes. And he says, lift up a snake. This is a picture of a curse. Lift up a cursed snake. Hang it up from a tree. And all the people need to do is come and look at it. Can you imagine being, you just got bit by a snake? And you're like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, Moses. Like, are you serious? Like, you don't have an anti-venom. There's not like a doctor. You're not going to at least try to like suck the poison out. You're telling me to go and look up at a cross and that's going to heal me. But those who went in faith and looked up to the cursed thing on the tree, they were healed. And here's my final application, final story. 
the story of Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher, and it's a salvation story. He was in his uh, early 20s or teenage years, I can't remember, but there was a giant snowstorm, and uh, he barely made it to church, and when he got there, there was about 15 or 20 people. The pastor couldn't even make it to church. The snowstorm was so bad. So this old man got up, he was a tailor, and uh, he preached, and he said this. This is what led to his salvation. He said this, look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me. Look to me. And he said to this young man, you look troubled. Have you looked to Jesus? And that was the moment of his salvation. So we're going to pray. We're just going to reflect. And let's look to Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this scarlet thread that you have woven through your scriptures. That you didn't leave us as orphans here. You didn't forsake us here on this earth. You came to restore all of creation, to restore our lives, to restore our families, to redeem our marriages, and to forgive us of our sin. And Jesus, we want to look to you. We want to look to you on the cross to see your body bruised, crushed, broken, bloodied there. And I love what Isaiah the prophet says. You love us so much that you carved your love into the palm of your hand. And we see you, Jesus. And we love you. And we thank you that you're a loving father, that you became sin. And Lord, we want to look up to you and believe in you that you would give us a saving faith. We believe you're the son of God, that you are innocent and that we are guilty. But would you remember us? Would you remember us? And we thank you that you didn't stay dead. We thank you that death could not hold you. And we thank you that we have a simple faith in you. Death has no sting. Death will have no victory over your church and your people who have a genuine saving faith in you, Jesus. And so I pray right now for those who don't know you, who've never said yes to you, Jesus, that they would say, yes, I believe in you. I'm the thief on the cross. I have a simple faith. I'm no good. But would you remember me, Jesus? And then I pray you would fill us, Jesus, with your spirit and that you would show us how to live in light of this cross that you bore for us, that we'd be fearless in life, fearless in death, because our Savior loves us with an everlasting love, and that we could see, Jesus, that you went through hell, that you went through separation, that you went through death, so we will only taste the shadow of death. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this good Friday. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.